Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 23rd of October 2017 and this is episode number 37. On this week's show, I talked to Dr. Andrew Bamji about the surgeon Dr. Harold Gillies and the development of, of plastic surgery in Great Britain during the Great War. Andrew has just published a new book on the topic titled Faces from the Front, which is published by Hellion and Co. Andrew, welcome to the show. Please can you start by telling us about your background and how you became interested in Harold Gillies and plastic surgery in the Great War. I am a rheumatologist. I'm not a plastic surgeon at all. Um, but when I got my consultant post, it was at the Brook Hospital in Woolwich and Queen Mary's Sidcup, and I moved full-time to Sidcup uh, in 1989, having started there in 83. When I uh, arrived at Sidcup, we had a consultant who had been designated as the hospital's archivist. He was a retired pathologist called Freddie Herman, and Freddie, uh, sadly, was terminally ill by uh, 1989, and uh, I was asked if I would take over. People knew that I collected stuff, so they thought I might be good at doing archives. And so I took over. We knew, of course, all of us, that the hospital had been uh, a plastic surgery unit, the plastic surgery unit in World War One, and we didn't really have very much information. But then suddenly I discovered a letter that Freddie had had from a retired oral surgery professor in New Zealand called Sandy McAllister, who had rescued all of the New Zealand section's records from the Queen's Hospital Sidcup, which were in the oral surgery department in Dunedin in New Zealand. And he had learned that they were going to be thrown away, so he'd taken them home. And he was going to give a lecture at the College of Surgeons in London about these records. So I and a large number of my Sidcup colleagues went up to listen to this lecture. And afterwards, I bearded him and said, if he was keeping them in his garage, would he be interested in letting us have them back? And then I didn't hear anything because he had a massive stroke while he was still in London. And I heard nothing. I wrote again once I knew he'd gone home and didn't hear anything. And then quite suddenly, out of the blue, I had a letter from Sandy's son, Donald, who said that he'd found my letter in a great pile of stuff that hadn't been dealt with. And uh, he had discussed it with his father. His father could no longer correspond, but he communicated to Don that he would be very happy for us to have the records back. He said, there's only one problem, it's going to cost a bit because there's quite a lot of it. But, I mean, we were so excited, we didn't really mind. And so we said we'd pay for any shipping costs. And then I didn't hear anything again for two or three months. And I went down to our postgraduate centre one lunchtime and our administrator said, we've had a funny phone call from the customs at Tilbury. There are two packing cases for you. And those were the records. And, in fact, one contained a whole sheaf of case notes, about nearly 300 of them, And the other had a wax model showing plastic surgery techniques. So once I managed to acquire those, these things tend to escalate. I wrote an article about them, and then I discovered the whereabouts of the British section records, which we thought had gone missing. And then I started to collect information about surgery in the Great War. And that went on to collect anything about anything medical in the Great War. And eventually I built up a library thanks to the 
uh, generosity of our chief executives who allowed me trust funds to do this. I built up a collection that was probably the best collection of First World War medicine and surgery anywhere. Um, and what do you do when you've got a primary archive? I've now got two and a half thousand sets of case notes, diagrams, x-rays, photographs, lists of operations and so forth. How can you tell the story? Uh, or how should I put it another way? How can you not tell the story when you own the primary source? So that's how the book began. Can you give me a bit of background on Harold Gillies? Harold Gillies was actually a very interesting man. Uh, he was born in New Zealand. Uh, he went to his first schools in New Zealand, and he came across uh, to Great Britain to study medicine at Gonville and Keyes College in Cambridge. Gillies is one of these infuriating people who was good at almost anything. He could play the piano almost to concert standards. He was an extremely good violinist. He was captain of the school cricket team in New Zealand. He was an excellent golfer. He could row. And indeed, uh, he was not only in the Keys boat in 1904, but he was also in the Cambridge crew, uh, which defeated Oxford uh, in 1904. And if you look at the list of men, he was only 10 stone something, and he was rowing number seven, which is a bit of a change from today's rowers. He was such a good golfer that he actually played for England in an amateur match against Scotland and curiously is commemorated on a cigarette card of great golfers that was produced in the 1930s. So he was good at all these things. He trained as an ENT surgeon, ear, nose and throat surgeon, uh, and I suppose that would in the end have been his destiny. He did have character flaws. He was an inveterate practical joker, and throughout his life that caused more than just trouble. It sometimes caused offence. But nevertheless, that was just the way he was. He was a reasonable artist, though better at landscapes than anything portrait-wise. Uh, so he was really a polymath. And I, my experience of polymaths is that a lot of them have got character flaws, and who cares if they're as brilliant as he was. So when we, just, just as a starting point for our, all our non-medical audience, when we talk about plastic surgery, what exactly do you mean? I've always thought it, it involves celebrities in Hollywood, but I think your book has shown I'm very, very wrong in that assumption. <laughs> um, it, yes, the celebrity stuff comes a bit later, largely. Uh, plastic surgery was all reconstructive during the 19th century. Um, before that, people were reconstructing noses. There were uh, men who'd been injured in sword fights, had their noses slashed off. There were people who suffered from congenital syphilis and had damage to the nose from that. Uh, so these things had been dealt with uh, rather poorly, one might say, partly because people didn't really understand wound healing, partly because infection was a big thing. Uh, but it was all reconstructive stuff. And what happened in World War I was you suddenly had this huge number of people with severe facial injuries. And what were you going to do with them? Uh, were you going to try and reconstruct them so that physically they looked good and functionally everything worked? If you lose your jaw, you can't eat. So can you reconstruct a jaw so people can eat again? So this is what plastic surgery was all about in World War I. How did Gillies become interested in this air, in this clinical area, and what type of facial injuries was he trying to treat as a result of the war? Gillies was an ENT surgeon by training, ear, nose and throat. Um, he worked at Bart's. When the war started, just after the war started, he was seconded uh, to France by the Red Cross and did some work uh, in a base hospital uh, in the eastern part of France. Uh, and he started to see the occasional 
facial injury, but he was then seconded to Boulogne and uh, later to Wimmera, where there was a dentist, American-French dentist called Valadier, who was doing some uh, prim fairly primitive, not entirely primitive, facial reconstructions. But because he wasn't medically qualified, he, uh, he was working in a British hospital, and the British insisted that he had a medically qualified person to supervise him. And Gillies took this role on. He realized very rapidly that the mechanics of trench warfare, where you've got people in fixed positions being shelled the whole time, and if they pop their head up over the edge of a trench, they'll get shot in the face, because that's the bit that shows, uh, this was going to become a big issue. The French had already discovered that it was a big issue and had started to mobilize plastic surgeons, well, should I say, uh, surgeons who could deal with facial injuries. They were largely uh, orofacial surgeons and dentists. And Gillies thought that this was not only going to be a big thing, but if people were going to make advances in it, you needed to get all the patients to come to the people who were interested in dealing with them. So he moved back from uh, Wimmera to Aldershot and persuaded the senior army surgeon, uh, William Arbuthnot Lane, that he should have a dedicated ward just for facial injury patients. And it didn't matter what sort of facial injury it was, it could be anything. He started to develop a little team of surgeons, dentists, and anaesthetist, and he uh, soon found that his ward that he was being given was inadequate for the numbers of patients coming through. And on the first day of the Somme, as he recorded, and I think a little bit exaggerated, 200 patients were expected and 2,000 arrived. I don't think it was as many as that, but nevertheless, it was quite clear that the way they wanted to operate on these people. You do an operation, it has to set. You might want to do another one, that has to set. So you need a lot of time to deal with these people. And they simply didn't have the space. So he went back to Arbuthnot Lane and said, look, my little ward at Aldershot is not big enough. What can we do? And Arbuthnot Lane knew a chap called Charles Kenderdine, who had helped to set up Queen Mary's Hospital, Roehampton, uh, which is, of course, the hospital for people who'd lost limbs. Um, and so Lane went to see Kenderdine and said, we want to do something rather like Roehampton. Can you think of somewhere we could put it? Now, Charles Kenderdine happened to be the land agent for the Frognall estate in southeast London. And Hugh Marsh and Townsend, who owned it, was trying to sell it. And it had failed to find a buyer, probably because you can't really sell property in the middle of a war very easily. And he suggested, Kenderdine suggested, that this was somewhere that they could site the hospital. And that's how it got to Sidcup. Now, once at, he was at Sidcup, your book shows some amazing changes or, or, or surgeries that, that Gillies and his colleagues actually carried out. Can you give us a brief mm. overview of what type of things they were able to do? Because it's very difficult to convey via radio um, a visual medium and some of the photographs you show um, show dramatic, dramatic changes in, in the way people looked. But if, if, if it's possible, could you just sort of indicate what type of injuries and what type of surgery and reconstructive techniques did they develop at Sidcup? It's difficult to summarise it because basically they did anything and everything. Um, if you go back to Gilly's textbook that he wrote in 1920, based on all the war experience, he actually divides the surgery that he did up into, if you like, geographical areas on the face. So there are injuries to the nose, injuries to the lips, injuries to the cheek, to the eye, uh, injuries to the jaw, that's the lower jaw, and then you have a whole series of patients who had quite serious burns, and they form a separate chapter. 
So it could be anything. You could have a fractured jaw. You could have lost a bit of jaw. You could have fragmented bone in the cheek. You could have been blinded. Uh, you could have lost your nose or part of it. And quite apart from all of those different things, you also had, as the war progressed, a small number of patients who were coming in from elsewhere, having been treated in an inadequate fashion. So you were not only dealing with an injury, but you were trying to undo the dreadful surgery that had been done by somebody else. So in a nutshell, that's it. You name it, they did it. And I might just add at that point, they started from a knowledge base of zero because the textbooks that they had gave them, if you like, recipes for how to do the surgery, sometimes with diagrams. And they started off trying these recipes and they didn't work. So they had to start again from scratch and try and work out why they didn't work and then devise techniques to make sure that they did work. Now, one thing you do talk about, and it's probably not often known um, to the general public outside the health service, is the role of the administration culture and actual physical structure of the building that he was able to develop, and also the way that he worked, and also the records. Uh, we, all, we all often malign NHS managers and administrators, but that side of care is so vital to provide proper clinical care. Can you actually outline some of the changes that he did, or, or some of the innovations he brought in? Yes, of course. The, the first thing that's interesting is that once they decided to build the hospital, which was December 1916, January 1917, the whole thing was actually up and running by June. They had built a whole load of wards. They built a plastic theatre, a septic theatre, because you don't want to mix up the clean and the dirty, if you like. They had organised all of the support bits of the hospital, like the canteen and the pathology department and so forth. And it was all done by an architect, but with Gilly's input. Uh, the idea partly being that each of the wards was separated from the others so that you didn't get cross-infection, but they were all fairly close-knit. The hospital plan shows a great horseshoe of wards with the plastic theatre in the centre. So, first of all, you've developed the hospital, and even that wasn't big enough, so they built some extra wards, and then they found some convalescent beds all over Bromley and Dartford. Uh, but then Gillies said, well, look, if we've got a British unit here, then we're going to learn, but all of the other Dominion surgeons who are doing this sort of work should also learn. So why don't we have them on site at the same time? So having started with the British section, he attracts the Australian section, which was run by Henry Newland, a very senior surgeon, in fact, who'd seen quite a lot of frontline service. They got a little Canadian unit to come over from Dartford, I think. And then there were the New Zealanders who were working at Walton-on-Thames under a chap called Henry Pickerell. And what's slightly curious is that there was a little bit of a freesaw, I think, between Gillies and Pickerell, and Pickerell didn't want to come. He was quite happy to stay at, at uh, Walton-on-Thames. And it is said that Queen Mary herself intervened and told Pickerell, if you like, not to be so silly and to grow up. Uh, so eventually, with slightly bad grace, he and his unit came as well. So you have this enormous collection of surgeons. You've managed to attract all the patients. Uh, I might add that at Aldershot, Gillies had got special labels produced that were stuck on casualty cards to make sure the facial injuries got to Aldershot, and the same thing happened at Sidcup. So you've got all the surgeons, all the patients. You've concentrated the patients in one place. You've concentrated the expertise in one place. So you have this enormous, uh, if you like, test bed of patients to refine your techniques. And that's actually what happened. But there was more to it than that, because Gillies and his colleagues 
realized two important things. One was that if you did nothing and if you listened to what was the sort of common knowledge at the time, then uh, people were going to people who had disfigurements were going to suffer horribly because they would be depressed because they were disfigured. Uh, they would be depressed because people would look at them in the street and scream or run away and their children would do the same. And a lot of the publicity was designed, if you like, to attract funds for the hospital to help these poor disfigured men who were going to suffer horribly. And Gillies was quite determined that they wouldn't suffer horribly. And he devised a whole series of ways of making sure that it didn't happen. First was there was a very active rehabilitation service, and that provided a whole load of different classes for people to learn the trade. And bear in mind, a lot of these young chaps have been working as postmen or porters or in one case, a chimney sweep, but they can be offered something perhaps slightly better. That's part one. Part two, because you've got all the patients in one place, the new arrivals can look at the older lags and say, oh my goodness, it's perhaps, you know, all your, you've had some of your surgery and it doesn't look as bad as we thought it might. And the old lags will say, and they would pull out a sheaf of photographs because Gillies gave them their photographs so they had a sort of sequential uh, set uh, to show what they had looked like at the beginning. They'd pull them out, show them to the youngsters and said, this is how I started, which is much the same as you. This is where I am now, as you can see. So don't get depressed because things are going to get substantially better than you feared. And the more I went into family histories that I acquired later over, well, over the last 20 years, I suppose, um, the more I realized that that aspect of uh, sending people away with their own sets of photographs was a very positive move. Now, in terms of teaching, uh, Gillies uh, realized that if you were going to learn properly and if you were then going to teach another generation of surgeons coming along behind, you had to have something to teach from. It was no good sort of describing it and showing the odd photograph. You actually had to keep notes that described how you did the operation in great detail. It should have diagrams in it to illustrate how you did the operation. You should have photographs that were not just an occasional photograph, but were, if you like, complete sets showing a front view, a side view, oblique views, whatever was necessary to show the various aspects of the face. And you should try and preserve some record in colour, which was done using pastels by Henry Tonks or watercolours by the other artists. The reason for that being that it gave the surgeons an idea of what an open wound in the situation looked like. And if you actually look at some of the watercolours that are in the Sidcup notes, they show infection, they show the lividity of a burn and all these sorts of things. You talked about um, Gillies and, and his sort of public public relations side. How did the press and the, pub, and the public and, and society in general react to Gillies' work and the men he was treating? They started off the press by being very negative about the whole thing and saying, well, we must support this venture because these poor disfigured men need our help, brackets not said and pity. Um, and I think that a lot of the early press reports, and there is a press cuttings book in the London Metropolitan Archive from Sidcup, and, and a lot of the articles appear in numerous papers across the country, but they're actually basically the same information. But they all say, we must provide funds so that these wonderful surgeons can try and do wonderful things to these poor men who are otherwise going to suffer a life of misery. And if you read some of the emotive stories of pe the press people who actually visited Sidcup, or indeed some of the nurses at Aldershot in the early stage, you will also get this 
sense that the patients were all depressed and they needed an enormous amount of support. But actually, I think that was just a fundraising exercise. And as time went by, the press started to say, these people are actually undergoing surgery, which is producing marvelous results. This is actually something that's quite, quite fantastic. So if you like, the tenor of the reports became much more positive than it had been at the beginning. When you look at um, Gilly's work as a, as a doctor, what were his mm. clinical outcomes? Were they, were they good? I mean, they certainly looked, looked so in the, in the book. But how would you judge them in, you know, relative to clinical developments in other countries at the time? I think that Gilly's outcomes, on the whole, were quite extraordinary. He was not infallible. He made mistakes. If you read his textbook, he actually admits to the mistakes. There's a man that I refer to in the book called Ralph Lumley, who was an RAF pilot who was seriously burned and got to Sidcup rather late in the day and was very depressed and actually forced Gillies' hand to operate when he felt he shouldn't. And Gillies admits this. He said that uh, his desire to get on with the surgery overcame his belief that the patient wasn't actually clinically ready for the surgery. And Lumley, of course, died as a result. And another patient called Rowley, he actually refers to a disastrous mistake that he made. You wouldn't believe it when you look at the final pictures. But nevertheless, he was extraordinarily honest. And he actually said it became much more difficult to get a good case than to hide a bad one. And that's because all of these surgeons are sitting there and they're all looking at each other's work. And if something goes wrong, they're all going to say, well, you didn't put that uh, set of stitches in quite as you should have done. Or why didn't you use this particular form of bone graft? Or all these sorts of discussions went on that helped to improve the whole uh, outcome situation. But there were still, nevertheless, things that you couldn't do. You could not restore the sight of a blinded man. And in fact, it was very difficult if you had a serious cheek injury, with, particularly with the bone under the eye, that's called the zygoma. If you lose that or have a severe fracture of it, then the eye socket effectively drops. And they never really got to grips with getting that straight. But when you think that they're working just on the basis of x-rays, uh, nothing else, just plain x-rays, uh, no MRI scans, no CT, no 3D reconstructions, um, no uh, microsurgery, so you can stitch little blood vessels together to make the grafts take. They did all of these various techniques completely from scratch. And I think that when you look at the notes, some of the results are not good. Okay, fair enough. You can mask if necessary. But a lot of the results were, quite honestly, fantastic considering the position they were in in terms of knowledge and background. When we look, at, when we look back at Gillies today, and his, obviously Gillies and his colleagues, what's his legacy? His legacy really is that he developed plastic surgery into a specialty of itself. It had never been done before on an organised basis. And by getting everyone together, he attracted interest and he attracted surgeons who wanted to go off and do it later. Actually, not so much in Britain, in the States, certainly. But what actually is quite remarkable is if you compare the British outcomes with the French and German outcomes. France had 15,000 facial casualties probably in the war, maybe more. Uh, Britain and the Dominions probably nearer 5,000. The Germans we don't really know. But in France, although they decided that they must do something about facial injury, they never concentrated their resources. So they had seven or eight different 
places with separate surgeons dealing with the casualties who, on the one hand, wouldn't get there until quite late. The average time to get to one of the French uh, facial injury centres was 40 days. By the end of the war, it was less than a week to get to Sidcup from the front. The second thing was, of course, because the surgeons were so few on the ground, there were never more than six in any one place. They never really learned anything. And they also had a different attitude. Whereas Gillies had the attitude that, that was, we can do better than you are. It may not be perfect, but by golly, it's going to be a darn sight better than you were expecting or uh, than you thought possible. Whereas the French stitched things together. They did it according to their recipe books, which didn't really work, so it fell apart. And they produced a whole series of men who were seriously disfigured and remained so. And my reading of the French literature, there isn't a lot, but a girl called Sophie Delaporte has written a very, very good pair of studies about les gueules cassées, the French facially injured. The surgeons never really learned and the surgeons had a sort of attitude of what I would call learned hopelessness. They knew they weren't any good, so they told the patients that they weren't any good. Uh, they said to the patients, well, you know, we'll stitch up the holes and make it sort of vaguely respectable, but you're going to have to wear a mask because there's nothing else we can do. And that was never Gillies' attitude. Gillies would actually persevere almost beyond the patient's wish for him to persevere to make sure that he got a good result. So when you look at France and Germany... Uh, where the same thing happened, patch up, get back to the front, or leave disfigured. You have there this legacy of horribly disfigured men who are effectively left to their own devices, whereas in Great Britain, the men are not only dealt with in an extraordinarily accurate and good way, but there is continuing follow-up. If you needed help after the war was over, well after the war was over, you could get in touch with Harold Gillies, write him a letter, or one of the other surgeons, and say, can I come back and see you again? And the door was always open. Finally, Andrew, where can people get your book? Uh, the book is called Faces from the Front, and it's been uh, published by Helion Press. Uh, you can either get it direct from uh, the publisher, or I believe that there are still some copies left on Amazon or some of the other bookselling sites. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.